Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Prison Officers Association, the UK's largest professional union for prison, correctional and secure psychiatric workers with over 30,000 members. In this episode, we discuss what happens when there is a death in custody, the subsequent inquest at the coroner's court and how members can best prepare for that. Later, we will hear from Keith Shepherd from Thompson Solicitors, who will walk us through the entire coroner's court process. But first, POA branch officer Laura Bird on her experience of a death in custody and why POA membership is so very important in such difficult circumstances. I joined the prison service in 2015 as an OSG in Eastwood Park. So I kind of wanted to go into the police at first, then I, I got swayed and I thought, well, I'll join the prison service because I do want to work with offenders. So then I had a taster as an OSG and then I thought, well, I can do the officer, so I'll go for it. So I did my officers um, at Newbold, did the training, and then I went to Downview in London, which is another female jail. And I stayed there for two years and they went back to Eastwood Park and I've been there since 2018. I can't speak for like being in a male prison. I think probably being a female officer in a male prison is very, very difficult. But I love my job. It's definitely thankless at times, very stressful, but I love it. I do love it. And working as a, a female with females definitely got their issues because I know I've got my issues and females express themselves in, in crazy ways but um, I love it. I would say when I was in OSG I was definitely a bit naive and I didn't join the POA. I was like no I don't, I'm not a prisoner facing role and I'm not sure if it's relevant to me and then quickly I realised it definitely is relevant. And so I joined when I did my officers and I signed up in, in the training and yeah, it's so, so, so important. When I was in Downview, that was in 2017, I found myself in a really sticky situation. Death in custody, a lot of details. I won't go into it, but it developed into this huge case where I got a phone call one day saying that I was being charged with gross negligence, manslaughter. I was suspended then and actually on bail until the trial. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but it... You know, it wasn't funny at all. They supported me from, from day one. Obviously, the trial was huge and it incurred a lot of legal fees, which I would be in no position to pay for myself. They supported me the whole the whole way. We had a good solicitor, barrister, a QC, and you think that that would have put me in so much debt. Like, my parents are working class. They wouldn't have been able to afford without going into debt themselves. So yeah, I, I owe them my life, I really do. Amazing. So um, Thompson Solicitors were exceptional, like the service they provided for me was amazing. Keith Shepherd was the solicitor and oh God, I owe him so much. I'll never be able to put into words how, how thankful I am. Um, his caseload was huge and he put so much work and time into building this huge case, which Obviously, we come through in the end, but he's brilliant. I'm a, a bit of a, like a poster girl now because all I have to do is walk into the office and I'll say if they don't if they're not in the union, and I literally say, "Do you want me to tell you my story again?" And they're like, "No, I, you know, I realise that." But you, you just are naive and you never think that you're gonna find yourself in in that situation. But it happens, and the the response the responsibility we've got in in our job is 
is is crazy and it only takes one little mistake you could be really the best prison officer ever but that one thing that you didn't write down or that one door you just didn't lock properly like, and that's it it just snowballs into something big and when you've got the union behind you you know they'll fight for you thank you laura now keith shepherd from thompson solicitors with a practical step-by-step -step guide to what happens when there is a death in custody and the whole coroner's court process. We're here today to look at uh, coroner's courts and the inquest that takes place within them. And the starting point is that if there is a death in prison, then in England and Wales, it's a legal requirement to have uh, to have an inquest. So, Keith, I suppose the starting point is, is what's the purpose of the inquest? The purpose of the inquest that the coroner will look at is to ascertain who the person was that died, where they died, the time of the death and how they died. And the, um, the fourth point on how they died in a um, prison environment is the most important questions where it goes into the circumstances of their stay in custody and they look into the care that was afforded to the deceased prior to the death. And it's a, a legal requirement for all deaths that occur in prisons to be subject to an inquest. Okay, so we'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll come to what it's like to actually attend one of these inquests and potentially to, to attend as a witness a little later on in our discussion. But for the time being, let, let's find out more about the inquest itself. So, so who are the people that are involved in an inquest? The coroner, obviously, because it's the coroner's court, but who else is going to be in the room, as it were, the coroner does preside over the um, at the proceedings. But um, just for information, a, a coroner is a, an independent judicial officer who is um, normally qualified as a barrister or a solicitor or um, a doctor. You know, they can come from different backgrounds. But the um, setup in a coroner's court, you do on occasions with Article Two inquests, which are more detailed um inquests um have a jury that are, would be the same as a jury in a, a criminal court um now it's um, a legal requirement to have a, a a jury for any deaths that take place in uh, a prison however most recently the coroner's rules have changed to state that there is not a requirement for a jury to preside over an, uh, an inquest where the death is one of natural causes. However, all self-inflicted deaths are um, subject to a, a jury. The representatives of the different parties, which are anyone who has a general interest in the death, may, at the discretion of the coroner, uh, be legally, legally represented. So we're talking about people like members of the family, the prison service will have legal representation and also any other person that's deemed a properly interested party, which can include individual prison officers. But we tend to see a lot of medical doctors, um, etc. And anyone that has a general interest in um, at the inquest can be made a properly interested party and have legal representation. The coroner does call witnesses, which are made up of people that um, are in any way, shape or form connected with the person that died. 
or was involved in any way with the circumstances surrounding the death that may be called by the coroner to give evidence. And their role is simply to relate any relevant facts to the coroner and jury to to help them uh, reach a conclusion. Now, with prison officers, they are ordinarily called as witnesses and they are, in the first instance, uh, required to attend courts if so, uh, if so asked by the coroner to assist with any information that they have regarding the circumstances and interventions that, that were made in respect of the deceased. And the um, other uh, people that are involved are, are the public. Um, an inquest is a, a public hearing, so anybody can attend. And, you, you know, you will always get members of the family. Uh, you can also see people that have an interest in in the inquest including members of the press so we've got we've got all those people in place in actually actually in the court and i suppose the next thing to consider is the evidence what is what is the evidence that gets brought forward and what can the court do with it they can't decide who's responsible can they or, or can they no the, the, the coroner's court is not there to consider evidence and apportion blame at, at all it's um an, an inquest are not a, a criminal court where they can decide who is responsible for the uh, death. And, and from the uh, evidence that they have before them, they will use that evidence quite simply to identify, or the coroner will identify the facts of what actually happened in order to identify the purpose of the inquest, which is, goes back to the, the questions that I mentioned at the start that the coroner will be asking who died, where they died, the time of the death and how they died. So the evidence can be used at an inquest in the um, prison environment would be the um, file of documents and papers that have uh, been received from the prison. So we would have the, the records of the deceased and uh, anything that was relevant from their stay in custody. That could make up uh, a number of documents in connection with with their stay. And we're talking about um, documents such as uh, the suicide and, and, and self-harm documents, any other documents that, that really relate to their, their time spent in, in prison that are withheld on, on any of the systems that the um, prison service use. And also, after the death has taken place, the prison and probation on probation's ombudsman, will go into the prison and interview members of staff and anybody in connection with uh, uh, the deceased. This is uh, something that um, does take a considerable amount of time and they, the uh, prisoner probation ombudsman will speak to a number of different agencies within the prison service in order to ascertain the interventions and, and, and any detailed communications as such with the um, uh, with the deceased. Uh, there are uh, obviously evidence documents that can be obtained, i.e. Um, anything uh, that's relevant even from before the incarceration and any medical reports or, or records that may have accompanied them to wherever the individual did pass away. Before we go on to talk about how the facts are established or, or what level of proof is, is required. The prison service ombuds, ombudsman, is their investigation subordinate to the coroner's court or is it an entirely separate matter? 
they, they, they're totally independent, but they end up, they, they they themselves can end up being called by the coroner, even though they provide a a, a full report uh, with the annexes, uh, and the annexes are the the witness statements or anything that that's relevant to their investigation. But it's very very detailed, and the coroner uses that document in order to really question witnesses that attend and question properly interested parties. But the coroner uses that document to give a full sort of overview of the uh, deceased stay in, in custody. And um, the, the author of the report is ordinarily called uh, at times by the um, coroner to come and give evidence um, in respect of the report. is asked questions uh, by artists. I suppose, therefore, anyone who's interviewed by the ombudsman as the individual needs to bear in mind that the ombudsman report will be seen by the coroner uh, and, and therefore anything they say to the ombudsman they must be re- bear in mind it will be seen at least seen by the coroner's court that's 100 percent correct yes and the um uh, the evidence that they give um in their witness statements will be relied upon at um at the, the inquest so it's very important that they uh, provide a, a very detailed and um, a clear account of uh, you know their involvement with the um, deceased because that that statement is going to be not only relied upon by the coroner but all of the interested parties will have copies of the statements given by the officers and they will be questioned if asked to attend uh, an inquest on the content of those documents. Okay, we'll, we'll come to the process of actually giving evidence a, a bit later on in the discussion. Now, the facts that, that get established in a coroner's court, is that is that to the civil standard of proof, which is a, 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 the balance of probabilities that something happened, or is it, a, is it the kind of higher criminal standard where things need to be proved beyond reasonable doubt? Generally, the facts are established to the um, civil standard of proof. So, yes, you're quite right. It's known as the uh, balance of probabilities rather than the um, criminal standard beyond all reasonable doubt. But um, uh, there are only two exceptions to this rule where there's been an unlawful killing or the deceased took their own life, where the evidence must satisfy the um, uh, criminal standard of proof. So the evidence has been submitted and has been weighed. What What are the possible outcomes that can come from a coroner's court hearing? There are a number of um, uh, conclusions open to the coroner, or if sorry, the, the jury as well, um, if if there is one. As I've said, Med, before the purpose of the, of a conclusion is not to identify uh, or apportion any blame, but in the first instance, the conclusion will explain uh, the circumstance or, or how the person actually um, uh, died. So, an example of natural causes if somebody died of a heart attack in prison that could be a conclusion to the uh, inquest they took their own life at, is, is another common conclusion where it's where it was a self-inflicted death and and in addition to that it can be um, given as a conclusion that they took their own life whilst their balance of mind was disturbed and the word suicide is is not ordinarily used another conclusion uh, is an accident or misadventure which is described as the unintended consequences of, of a deliberate attack whilst the coroner can give those conclusions they they can also have a, a neglect 
rider to them insofar as that they, they that can be attached to them and they can provide an additional explanation as to why they feel that the uh, conclusion should have a, a neglect outcome proven to the civil standard attached to them and uh, an, an example of this is that it, in a, if uh, a death happened in prison the inquest can find that there was neglect on part on the part of the prison service which directly caused or contributed to the prisoner's death however going back to what i said previously it still cannot name any individuals or their acts or or omissions that caused the death those list of um uh conclusions are not exhaustive insofar as that there are other verdicts such as unlawful killing which is which includes both uh, murder and manslaughter an open verdict where there was insufficient evidence to prove any other verdict and a uh, what's called a narrative verdict which allows the jury to add comments to their verdict which is is exactly what i've um, explained to you for a neglect outcome if a coroner's court was to return uh, a conclusion that included a negligence clause, or if they were to conclude that there'd been an unlawful killing, presumably there would be consideration of criminal charges to follow that if they'd identified if they identified a, a, an unlawful act. That is correct. And if there was a, an un, unlawful act that was identified during the inquest, the cor- it's open to the coroner to ask the police to reinvestigate um, if there was any criminal act. Ordinarily, the the police have primacy over any death in custody to investigate and to make sure that there's there's been no unlawful acts and ordinarily they will conduct their own investigation if so required before the actual inquest and the coroner must wait until the police have um, completed any investigations in the first instance to identify whether or not um, any individual should be considered for an investigation or any criminal prosecution. Given that these are public hearings and given the nature of the, the hearings, there the media are going to be often involved and, and present actually at the court. Yes, they, they are quite quite often uh, in attendance at the coroner's court. The the media the media being present could pose some challenges. What's the general advice that would be offered to members of the POA who have been in court and given evidence as, as a witness? Members of the press do attempt to um, uh, speak to witnesses who have given evidence and it's our advice that they should not participate in any interviews either during or after the inquest is concluded and they are are certainly not allowed to talk to anyone until after the um, inquest is actually or they've given their evidence and it's actually concluded. We advise members that they should refuse politely to speak to any members of the press who approach them as uh, it, it's not uh, advisable given the um, press's stance on on what they are reporting and w- which is ordinarily very negative towards the um, prison service and the staff yeah, so i think a, a polite refusal is probably the best uh, the best way to summarize that for both for le- legal reasons because it would be subjudice if the case was still ongoing and because actually the press are probably not interested in the same things as uh, uh, as the coroner's court or the poa themselves right so so that's that's the process of the uh, of the hearing. Now, if we turn to the role of individual POA members, obviously we we've discussed how before they get to the hearing, they'll have probably given a statement to the prison service ombudsman. They may have given a state a, a statement to the police. 
how should they prepare for the hearing? How, first of all, how do they know that they'll be required to attend the hearing? They will be advised through the prison service, through the employer, ordinarily safe for custody, that they are required to attend an inquest. If that doesn't which normally does, they could receive a, um, a witness summons through the post. Now, if a, um, a POA member is requested and asked to attend an inquest, they could be asked in advance of attending to give a further statement to that of what, what was given to the prison and probation ombudsman if the coroner wants any further questions asked that's maybe not covered within that statement. And it is the case sometimes that the ombudsman may not have interviewed every single person that's required to attend the inquest as a witness. So that statement is normally taken in advance, uh, as I said, of the inquest and is either done by the um, police and or an officer from the um, coroner's office. But ordinarily, the coroner may ask the, the prisoner probation ombudsman to take further statement as well. So they receive a summons. Do they, do they themselves have to inform the employer that they're going to be absent from work in order to attend the court? All of the arrangements for the uh, attendance at court, whether they are being asked directly by the court or they're being asked through the um, prison service themselves to attend, will make sure that the governor will make sure that they are given sufficient leave to uh, attend an inquest. They will be spoken to about the contents of the, the, the requirement to attend the inquest and prepared. It, it to um, give evidence at an inquest. So part of that preparation presumably will be making sure they've reacquainted themselves with whatever statements they've given in the past. So I guess, w- would you advise people to keep copies of all, their, all the statements that they provide so, so they're able to do that? Yes. When they actually give a statement to the prison and probation ombudsman, they should actually be given a copy of uh, what they've provided. And yes, they should keep a copy but any statement that they have made will be in possession of the legal representatives so the um, prison service will have legal representation in the form of a barrister attending the um, inquest and ordinarily the members of staff can be represented by the prison service barrister at the inquest who will be furnished with all of the evidence in the case and prior to attending the inquest the witnesses, i.e. that the, the, the um, prison service employees, will have a, uh, a full conference with the um, barrister and the uh, government legal department in order to prepare themselves for giving evidence at the inquest. And they will be supplied with copies of their statements that they've made, uh, whether it be to the ombudsman or to, or to a police officer. So there, there will be a conference with the legal representatives at which the POA member will be briefed on procedure, reminded about the the statements that they've put in. And I suppose, crucially, any kind of procedurally or statutory required documents will be will be part of that bundle and part of that discussion. Yes, um, when, when these conferences take place, which are ordinarily at, at the prison, they will be attended by the government legal department and the barrister who will be um, representing the prison service. And um, the um, individual members of staff will be given copies of any statements that they have given, along with any um, documents that are, are relevant that they may have made entries on. A very important document would be the, uh, what's called a, the ACT document, uh, which is an, an assessment caring custody uh, and teamwork document 
which is a very detailed document where checks are made on a um, an, an inmate where somebody is uh, considered to be uh, at risk of uh, suicide or self-harm. So the POA member is, is uh, has given their statements, they've been reminded of their statements, they're primed and, and prepared as it were. It's the day of the hearing and they turn up at the court. Where, where do they go? Who do they speak to? They will be met by either somebody from the prison service and ordinarily they will have a, a liaison team at the court and they will also again speak to the government legal department who will be there to make sure that um, everything runs smoothly and also the barrister that they've already spoken to will be there as well. They will direct people to where they should wait and when they are required to attend court and go into the witness box they will be told where they should go and where they should sit um, and uh, everything else. Now the government legal department will in their conference with the individuals give a full explanation as to what is required of them on the day and on occasions they may even facilitate a, um, a meeting at the court coroner's court prior to them giving evidence so they can see the layout and and what's actually required but that's that will be down to the individual prison and the um, uh, government legal department as to whether or not they're going to provide that but it's something that I would always recommend any individual go to give evidence at coroner's court to go and see where they are uh, required to go so they can get a a feel as to um, what's going to be required of them. Right, sound sound advice. Sound advice, I'd say. So the officers of the court have, have come forward and they've uh, they've asked the POA member to to go into the witness box. They're caught, they're, they've been called to give evidence. What do they do? What do they say? Can they stand up? Do they sit down? What if they can't stand for long periods of time? How? What exactly are they going to experience once they get into the witness box? The coroner wants them to be as comfortable and relaxed as possible, and they are able to uh, ordinarily they're able to sit down to give their evidence. However, they can ask for that from the coroner but the coroner may ask them to stand and um they should you know when um they give their evidence but it, because ordinarily they could be um giving evidence for some the coroner normally um says that uh, any um witness can sit sit in a, um, a chair um in order to give their evidence and make sure that they're as uh, comfortable as they possibly are I mean, it's it's not it's not a criminal court, of course, of course not. But do you still have to swear an oath before giving your evidence? Yes, uh, you, the, the, any witness will be asked to swear on uh, swear an oath on the, either the Bible or another holy book. But if they uh, don't want to do that, they can ask. Uh, be that they will be asked to affirm, uh, which is uh, the promise to tell the truth. And, and then presumably the uh, the questioning starts. That's right. The coroner will start the, the, the um, question as such. And what he will ordinarily do is to go through the um, any statement that the witness has made and ask a, a simple series of questions. And following on from those questions, the various legal representatives who are present may also ask some questions uh, along with members of the jury. And in terms of just, just like who who you should look at when you're answering the question, I can imagine if there's a jury, the jury's making the decision, so you you address your answers to the jury. But 
if a legal representative is asking you a question, do you look at them when you reply or do you always look at the coroner because it's the coroner's court? Ordinarily, witnesses should look at the coroner when asking questions, uh, when answering questions. And uh, unless they're obviously in, in, in the case where a jury is asking them, they can uh, address their answers to them, uh, no matter who answer, no matter who asked the question. But um, ordinarily, the, the, the witness is facing the coroner, whether sitting down or, or standing up. And any questions that, that can be asked from around the court, uh, the witness should remain in the uh, same position and direct any responses directly to the coroner. So, Keith, what's, what's the best advice that can be given to people who are in the witness box giving their, giving their evidence? Witnesses who uh, are required to give evidence are advised that they should speak loudly, clearly, um, using short and simple uh, sentences. There are a number of things when providing evidence that they should stick to and they should make sure that they are giving direct responses to questions and not be tempted to volunteer information. The witnesses must provide clear responses to questions because they are uh, going to be recorded and um, obviously should avoid nodding or shaking their head in a reply to a question because the audio recording equipment would not pick that up. It's also very, very important that any witness must answer the question actually being asked, not what they think they are being asked. And if they're not sure as to the answer to a question, it is totally valid for them to say, I'm not aware of that or I can't answer that question. As I've mentioned uh, before, they've, they've got to tell, they must tell the truth and try not to give the right answer in a, in a scenario uh, where they're asked a, a quite tricky uh, question. And, um, and if they don't know uh, what the right answer or, or any answer for that fact, they should say so. If uh, any witness does not understand what they're being asked or, or didn't hear the question properly, then they should ask for it to um, be repeated. And similarly, none of the witnesses should be rushed into answering uh, any question. And um, if they feel that they are, they can ask the coroner for some more time. But it's it's very, very important for any uh, witnesses giving evidence that they are not pushed into maybe getting rattled or, or angry and most certainly should also avoid giving what I call clever answers in, in response to any question that might come from the representatives of the family and that they, they must just be clear and give short responses. So, yeah, I suppose as well as avoiding giving what, what I think you, everyone understands what you mean when you say clever, clever answers, um, it's got to be a factual response, hasn't it? They, they, the witnesses have got to avoid like opinion or insinuation. And that does happen quite a lot. You're uh, you're quite right. They they um, the witnesses should answer questions with with own with facts only. And you may get a um, representative from the family making insinuations as to what potentially happened or why they conducted something the way they did. So witnesses have got to be clear about giving their responses and ignoring any insinuations that have been made from any representatives 
And that goes for the same with witnesses thinking that they did not explain something clearly, or if they've said something that's bleeding, then they should say so at once. But of course, choice of language is very important in other ways as well, isn't it? Because slang or jargon is part of everyday working life, whatever your occupation or, or, or profession, but it won't, that won't necessarily do for a, cor- a coroner's court. That's right. It's really important that, that all witnesses are, are very sensitive to the situation because obviously that the, the, um, the inquest is about the, a death and, and the family are going to be present. So they mustn't refer to inmates as um, any uh, slang or any prison service jargon that they may use whilst, whilst working. And witnesses sh- should refer to the deceased importantly as Mr or Mrs with the surname and also uh, when uh, addressing the coroner they uh, they respond as sir or madam. Right well I mean I think that's a tremendously useful uh, practical uh, set of points but once they've given their evidence can witnesses then just 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 leave the court building and make for the nearest cup of tea to to just you know reflect on what could be quite a quite a, a lengthy and uh, and challenging process or do they need to hang around? Ordinarily, the coroner will, um, at the end of their evidence, advise the uh, witness that they are now released and they will be told that they can leave the witness box and they will be given the direction um, from the the coroner. But if there is any matters that the coroner wishes to ask them about, then they could be advised to stay in the building if um, any further information is required from them uh, and that they shouldn't leave without um, express permission from the coroner. However, ordinarily, after a uh, witness has provided evidence, they are um, normally released and, and can either leave the building or go back to work as directed by their employer. Thank you, Keith. And the message is clear. When dealing with the upset of a death in custody even one where the facts of the matter are clear and not disputed, prison officers need the support of their union and the legal services it provides. This is a key way in which the union is working hard to make sure the workplace challenges faced by members are understood and wherever possible controlled, and that members get the support they need. Truly, the union is only as strong as its members, and the more members the union has, the louder and stronger the union's voice. So if you're listening to this and haven't signed up, speak to your local POA rep or head over to poauk.org.uk to find out how to join and all the information you need about the union and the work it does supporting members called to give evidence in the coroner's court and everything else. Thank you to Keith and Laura for joining us on this episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you like what you've heard and will join us for the next episode of the POA podcast. Thanks and goodbye.